CD5 The walls of the Forbidden City are forty feet high, said Butterfly, and the gates are made of brass. There are hundreds of guards, but of course we have the Great Wizard. Who? You. Oh, sorry, I was forgetting. Yes, said Butterfly, giving Rincewind a long appraising look. Rincewind remembered tutors giving him a look like that when he'd got high marks in some test by simply guessing at the answers. He looked down hurriedly at the charcoal scrawls Lotus Blossom had made. Cohen had know what to do, he thought. He'd just slaughter his way through. It had never crossed his mind to be afraid or worried. He's the kind of man you need at a time like this. No doubt you have magic spells that can blow down the walls, said Lotus Blossom. Rincewind wondered what they would do to him when it turned out that he couldn't. Not a lot, he thought, if I'm already running. Of course they could curse his memory and call him names, but he was used to that. Sticks and stones may break my bones, he thought. He was vaguely aware that there was a second half to the saying, but he'd never bothered because the first half always occupied all his attention. Even the luggage had left him. That was a minor bright spot, but he missed the patter of little feet. Before we start, he said, I think you ought to sing a revolutionary song. The cadre liked the idea. Under cover of their chanting, he sidled over to Butterfly, who gave him a knowing smile. You know I can't do it. The master said you were very resourceful. I can't magic a hole in a wall. I'm sure you'll think of something. And, Great Wizard? Yes, what? Favourite Pearl, the child with the toy rabbit. Yes? The cadre is all she has. The same goes for many of the others. When the warlords fight, lots of people die. Parents. Do you understand? I was one of the first to read what I did on my holidays, great wizard. And what I saw in there was a foolish man who for some reason is always lucky, great wizard. I hope for everyone's sake you have a great deal of luck, especially for yours. Fountains tinkled in the courts of the Sun Emperor. Peacocks made their call, which sounds like a sound made by something that shouldn't look as beautiful as that. Ornamental trees cast their shade as only they know how, ornamentally. The gardens occupied the heart of the city, and it was possible to hear the noises from outside, although these were muted because of the straw spread daily on the nearest streets, and also because any sound considered too loud would earn its originator a very brief stay in prison. Of the gardens, the most aesthetically pleasing was the one laid out by the first emperor, one sung mirror. It consisted entirely of gravel and stones, but artfully raked and laid out as it might be by a mountain torrent with a refined artistic sense. It was here that one sun mirror, in whose reign the empire had been unified and the great wall built, came to refresh his soul and dwell upon the essential unity of all things, while drinking wine out of the skull of some enemy, or possibly a gardener who had been too clumsy with his rake. At the moment the garden was occupied by two little Wang, the master of protocol, who came there because he felt it was good for his nerves. Perhaps it was the number two he'd always told himself. It was an unlucky birth number. Being called little Wang was merely a lack of courtesy detail, a sort of minor seagull dropping after the very great heap of buffalo excrement that heaven had pasted into his very horoscope although he had to admit that he hadn't made things any better by allowing himself to become master of protocol. 
It had seemed such a good idea at the time. He'd risen gently through the Agatean civil service by mastering those arts essential to the practice of good government and administration, such as calligraphy, origami, flower arranging, and the five wonderful forms of poetry. He dutifully got on with the tasks assigned to him and noticed only vaguely that there didn't seem to be quite as many high-ranking members of the civil service as there used to be. And then one day, a lot of senior mandarins, most of them a lot more senior than he was, it occurred to him later, had rushed up to him while he was trying to find a rhyme for Orange Blossom and congratulated him on being the new master. That had been three months ago. And of the things that had occurred to him in those intervening three months, the most shameful was this. He had come to believe that the Sun Emperor was not, in fact, the Lord of Heaven, the Pillar of the Sky, and the Great River of Blessings, but an evil-minded madman whose death had been too long delayed. It was an awful thought. It was like hating motherhood and raw fish, or objecting to sunlight. Most people develop their social conscience when young, during that brief period between leaving school and deciding that injustice isn't necessarily all bad and it was something of a shock to suddenly find one at the age of sixty. It wasn't that he was against the golden rules. It made sense that a man prone to thieving should have his hands cut off. It prevented him from thieving again, and thus tarnishing his soul. A peasant who could not pay his taxes should be executed in order to prevent him falling into the temptation of slothfulness and public disorder. And since the empire was created by heaven as the only true world of human beings, all else outside being a land of ghosts, it was certainly in order to execute those who questioned this state of affairs. But he felt that it wasn't right to laugh happily while doing so. It wasn't pleasant that these things should happen. It was merely necessary. From somewhere in the distance came the screams. The emperor was playing chess again. He preferred to use live pieces. Two little Wang felt heavy with the knowledge. There had been better times, he knew that now. Things hadn't always been the way they were. Emperors didn't used to be cruel clowns around whom it was as safe as mudbanks in the crocodile season. There hadn't always been a civil war every time an emperor died. Warlords hadn't run the country. People had rights as well as duties. And then one day the succession had been called into question and there was a war. And since then it had never seemed to go right. Soon, with any luck, the emperor would die. No doubt a special hell was being made ready. And then there'd be the usual battle, and then there'd be a new emperor, and if he was very lucky, two little Wang would be beheaded, which was what tended to happen to people who had risen to high office under a previous incumbent. But that was quite reasonable by modern standards, since it was possible these days to be beheaded for interrupting the emperor's thoughts, or standing in the wrong place. At which point, two little Wang heard ghosts. They seemed to be right under his feet, they were talking in a strange language, so to two little Wang the speech was merely sounds, which went as follows. Where the hell are we? Somewhere under the palace, I'm sure. Look for another manhole in the ceiling. What? I'm fed up with pushing this dumb wheelchair. It's me for a hot foot bath after this, I'm telling you. You call this a way to enter a city. You call this a way to enter a city, waist deep in water. We didn't enter a wretched city like this when I rode with Bruce the Hoon. You enter a love-making city by overrunning it with a thousand horsemen. That's how you take a city. Yes, but there ain't room for them in this pipe. 
The sounds had a hollow booming quality to them. With a kind of fascinated puzzlement, two little Wang followed them, walking across the manicured gravel in an unthinking way that would have earned him an immediate tongue extraction from its original lover of peace and tranquillity. Can we please hurry? I'd like us to be out of here when the cauldron goes off and I didn't really have much time to experiment with the fuses. I still don't understand about the cauldron, Teach. I hope all those firecrackers will blow a hole in the wall. Right, so why ain't we there? Why are we in this pipe? Because all the guards will rush to see what the bang was. Right, so we should be there. No, we should be here, Cohen. The word is decoy. It's more civilised this way. Two little Wang pressed his ear to the ground. What's the penalty for entering the Forbidden City again, Teach? I believe it's a punishment similar to hanging, drawing and quartering. So you see, it would be a good idea if there was a very faint sound of splashing. How are you drawn, then? I think your innards are cut out and shown to you. What for? I don't really know. To see if you recognise them, I suppose. What, like, yep, that's my kidneys, yep, that's my breakfast? How are you quartered? Is that like, they give you somewhere to stay? Um, I, I think not, from the context. For a while there was no sound but the splash of six pairs of feet and the squeak-squeak of what sounded like a wheel. Well, how are you hung? Excuse me? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Two little Wang tripped over a 200-year-old bonsai tree and hit his head on a rock chosen for its fundamental serenity. When he came around a few seconds later, the voices had gone, if there had ever been any. Ghosts. There were a lot of ghosts around these days, Two little Wang wished he'd had a few firecrackers to scatter around. Being master of protocol was even worse than trying to find a rhyme for orange blossom. Flares lit the alleys of Hung Hung. With the Red Army chattering behind him, Rincewind wandered up to the wall of the Forbidden City. No one knew better than Rincewind that he was totally incapable of proper magic. He'd only ever done it by accident so he could be sure that if he waved a hand and said some magic words, the wall would in all probability become just a little bit less full of holes than it was now. It was a shame to disappoint Lotus Blossom with her body that reminded Rincewind of a plate of crinkle-cut chips, but it was about time she learned that you couldn't rely on wizards. And then he could be out of here. What could Butterfly do to him if he tried and failed? And, much to his surprise, he found himself hoping that on the way out he could poke Herb in the eye. He was amazed the others couldn't spot him for what he was. This area of wall was between gates. The life of Hung Hung lapped against it like a muddy sea. There were stalls and booths everywhere. Rincewind had thought Ankh Morpork citizens lived out on the streets, but they were agrophobes compared to the Hung Hungese. Funerals with associated firecrackers and wedding parties and religious ceremonies went on alongside and intermingled with the normal market activities such as free-form livestock slaughter and world-class arguing. Herb pointed to a clear area of the wall stacked with timber. Just about there, great wizard, he sneered. Do not exert yourself unduly. A small hole should be sufficient. But there's hundreds of people around. Is that a problem to such a great wizard? 
Perhaps you can't do it with people watching. I have no doubt that the great wizard will astonish us, said Butterfly. When the people see the power of the great wizard, they will speak of it forever, said Lotus Blossom. Probably, muttered Rincewind. The cadre stopped talking, although it was only possible to notice this by watching their closed mouths. The hole left by their silence was soon filled by the babble of the market. Rincewind rolled up his sleeves. He wasn't even certain about a spell for blowing things up. He waved a hand vaguely. I should stand well back, everyone, said Herb, grinning unpleasantly. Quanti canicular illa in fenestri, said Rincewind. Um, he stared desperately at the wall, and with that heightened perception that comes to those on the edge of terror, noticed a cauldron half hidden in the timber. There seemed to be a little glowing string attached to it. Um, he said, there seems to be... Having problems, said Herb nastily. Rincewind squared his shoulders. Mm, he said. There was a sound like a marshmallow gently landing on a plate, and everything in front of him went white. Then the white turned red, streaked with black, and the terrible noise clapped its hands across his ears. A crescent-shaped piece of something glowing scythed the top off his hat and embedded itself in the nearest house, which caught fire. There was a strong smell of burning eyebrows. When the debris settled, Rincewind saw quite a large hole in the wall. Around its edge, the brickwork, now a red-hot ceramic, started to cool with a noise like glinka-glinka. He looked down at his soot-blackened hands. Gosh, he said. And then he said, all right. And then he turned and began to say, how about that then? But his voice faded when it became apparent that everyone was lying flat on the ground. A duck watched him suspiciously from its cage. Owing to the slight protection afforded by the bars, its feathers were patterned alternately natural and crispy. He'd always wanted to do magic like that. He'd always been able to visualise it perfectly. He'd just never been able to do it. A number of guards appeared in the gap. One, whose ferocity of helmet suggested that he was an officer, glared at the charred hole and then at Rincewind. "'Did you do this?' he demanded. "'Stand back!' shouted Rincewind, drunk with power. "'I'm the great wizard I am. You see this finger? Don't make me use it!' The officer nodded to a couple of his men. "'Get him!' Rincewind took a step back. "'I warn you, anyone lays a hand on me, he'll be eating flies and hopping for the rest of his life!' The guards advanced with the determination of those who were prepared to risk the uncertainty of magic against the definite prospect of punishment for disobeying orders. Stand back! This could go off! All right then, since you force me... He waved his hands. He snapped his fingers a few times. Um, the guards, after checking that they were still the same shape, each grabbed an arm. It may be delayed action, he ventured as they gripped harder. Alternatively, would you be interested in hearing a famous quotation, he said. His feet were lifted off the ground. Or perhaps not. Rincewind, running absent-mindedly in mid-air, was brought in front of the officer. On your knees, rebel, said the officer. I'd like to, but I saw what you did to Captain Four White Fox. What? Who's he? Take him to the Emperor! As he was dragged off, Rincewind saw for one brief moment the guards closing on the Red Army, swords flashing. A metal plate shuddered for a moment and then dropped on the floor. Careful, 
I ain't used to being careful. Bruce the Hoon wasn't ca- Shut up about Bruce the Hoon. Well, dang you too. What? Anyone out there? Cohen stuck his head out of the pipe. The room was dark, damp and full of pipes and runnels. Water went off in every direction to feed fountains and cisterns. No, he said in a disappointed voice. Very well, everyone out of the pipe. There was some echoey swearing and the scrape of metal as Hamish's wheelchair was manoeuvred into the long, low cellar. Mr Savaloy lit a match as the horde spread out and examined their surroundings. Congratulations, gentlemen, he said. I believe we are in the palace. Yeah, said Truckle. We've conquered a, f- a-, a love-making pipe. What good is that? We could rape it, said Caleb, hopefully. Hey, this wheel thing turns. What's a love-making pipe? What does this lever do? What? said Mad Hamish. How about we find a door, rush out and kill everyone? Mr Savaloy closed his eyes. There was something familiar about this situation and now he realised what it was. He'd once taken an entire class on a school trip to the city armoury. His right leg still hurt him on wet days. No, 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 he said. What good would that do? Boy Willie, please don't pull that lever. Well, I'd feel better for one, said Cohen. Ain't killed anyone all day except a guard, and they hardly count. Remember that we're here for theft, not murder, said Mr Savaloy. Now please, out of all that wet leather and into your nice new clothes. I don't like this part, said Cohen, pulling on a shirt. I like people to know who I was. Yeah, said Boy Willie. Without our leather and mail, people will just think we're a load of old men. Exactly, said Mr Savaloy. That is part of the subterfuge. Is that like tactics, said Cohen? Yes. All right, but I don't like it said old Vincent. Supposing we win, what kind of song will the minstrels sing about people who invaded through a pipe? An echoey one, said boy Willie. They won't sing anything like that, said Cohen firmly. You pay a minstrel enough, he'll sing whatever you want. A flight of damp steps led to a door. Mr Savaloy was already at the top, listening. That's right, said Caleb. They say that whoever pays the piper calls the tune. But, gentlemen, said Mr Savaloy, his eyes bright, whoever holds a knife to the piper's throat writes the symphony. The assassin moved slowly through Lord Hong's chambers. He was one of the best in Hung Hung's small but very select guild, and he certainly was not a rebel. He disliked rebels. They were invariably poor people, and therefore unlikely to be customers. His mode of movement was unusual and cautious. It avoided the floor. Lord Hong was known to tune his floorboards. It made considerable use of furniture and decorative screens, and occasionally of the ceiling as well. And the assassin was very good at it. When a messenger entered the room through a distant door, he froze for an instant and then moved in perfect rhythm towards his quarry, letting the newcomer's clumsy footsteps mask his own. Lord Hong was making another sword. 
The folding of the metal and all the tedious yet essential bouts of heating and hammering were, he found, conducive to clear thinking. Too much pure cerebration was bad for the mind. Lord Hong liked to use his hands sometimes. He plunged the sword back into the furnace and pumped the bellows a few times. Yes, he said. The messenger looked up from his prone position near the floor. Good news, O oh Lord. We have captured the Red Army. Well, that is good news, said Lord Hong, watching the blade carefully for the change of colour, including the one they call the Great Wizard. Indeed, but he is not that great, O oh Lord, said the messenger. His cheerfulness faded when Lord Hong raised an eyebrow. Really? On the contrary, I suspect him of being in possession of huge and dangerous powers. Yes, O oh Lord, I did not mean... See that they are all locked up, and send a message to Captain Five Hong Man to undertake the orders I gave him today. Yes, O oh Lord. And now, stand up. The messenger stood up, trembling. Lord Hong pulled on a thick glove and reached for the sword handle. The furnace roared. Chin up, man. My lord. Now, open your eyes wide. There was no need for that order. Lord Hong peered into the mask of terror, noted the flicker of movement, nodded, and then in one almost balletic movement, pulled the spitting blade from the furnace, turned, thrust. There was a very brief scream and a rather longer hiss. Lord Hong let the assassin sag. Then he tugged the sword free and inspected the steaming blade. Hmm, he said. Interesting. He caught sight of the messenger. Are you still here? No, my lord. See to it. Lord Hong turned the sword so that the light caught it and examined the edge. Um, shall I send some servants to clear away the, uh, body? What? said Lord Hong, lost in thought. The body, Lord Hong? What body? Oh, yes, see to it. The walls were beautifully decorated. Even Rincewind noticed this, though they went past in a blur. Some had marvellous birds painted on them, or mountain scenes, or sprays of foliage, every leaf and bud done in exquisite detail with just a couple of brush strokes. Ceramic lions reared on marble pedestals. Vases bigger than Rincewind lined the corridors. Lacquered doors opened ahead of the guards. Rincewind was briefly aware of huge, ornate and empty rooms stretching away on either side. Finally, they passed through yet another set of doors, and he was flung down on a wooden floor. In these circumstances, he always found it was best not to look up. Eventually, an officious voice said, What do you have to say for yourself, miserable louse? Well, I... Silence. Ah, so it was going to be that kind of interview. A different voice, a cracked, breathless and elderly voice, said, Where is the Grand Vizier? He has retired to his rooms, O oh Great One. He said he had a headache. Summon him at once. Certainly, O oh Great One. Rincewind, his nose pressed firmly to the floor, made some further assumptions. 
Grand Vizier was always a bad sign. It generally meant that people were going to suggest wild horses and red-hot chains. And when people were called things like, Oh, great one, it was pretty certain that there was no appeal. This is a rebel, is it? The sentence was wheezed rather than spoken. Indeed, O Great One. I think I would like a closer look. There was a general murmur suggesting that a number of people had been greatly surprised, and then the sound of furniture being moved. Rincewind thought he saw a blanket on the edge of his vision. Someone was wheeling a bed across the floor. Make it stand up. The gurgle in the pause was like the last bathwater going down the plug hole. It sucked as wetly as an outgoing wave. Once again, a foot kicked Rincewind in the kidneys, making its usual explicit request in the Esperanto of brutality. He got up. It was a bed, and quite the biggest Rincewind had ever seen. In it, swathed in brocades and almost lost in pillows, was an old man. Rincewind had never seen anyone look so ill. The face was pale, with a greenish pallor. Veins showed up under the skin of his hands like worms in a jar. The Emperor had all the qualifications for a corpse, except, as it were, the most vital one. So, this is the new great wizard of whom we have read so much, is it? He said. When he spoke, people waited expectantly for the final gurgle in mid-sentence. Well, I... Silence! screamed the Chamberlain. Rincewind shrugged. He hadn't known what to expect of an emperor, but the mental picture had room for a big fat man with lots of rings. Talking to this one was a hair's breadth from necromancy. Can you show us some more magic? Great wizard. Rincewind glanced at the Chamberlain. Whoa, silence! The Emperor waved a hand vaguely, gurgled with the effort, and gave Rincewind another inquiring look. Rincewind decided to chance things. I've got a good one, he said. It's a vanishing trick. Can you do it now? Only if everyone opens all the doors and turns their back. The Emperor's expression did not change. The court fell silent. Then there was a sound like a number of small rabbits being choked to death. The Emperor was laughing. Once this was established, everyone else laughed too. No one can get a laugh like a man who can have you put to death more easily than he goes to the lavatory. <laughs> what shall we do with you? he said. Where is the Grand Vizier? The crowd parted. Rincewind risked a sideways squint. Once you were in the hands of a Grand Vizier, you were dead. Grand Viziers were always scheming megalomaniacs. It was probably in the job description. Are you a devious, plotting, unreliable madman? Ah, good. Then you can be my most trusted minister. Ah, Lord Hong said the Emperor. Mercy, suggested Rincewind. Silence, screamed the Chamberlain. Tell me, Lord Hong, said the ancient Emperor, 
What would be the punishment for a foreigner entering the forbidden city? Removal of all limbs, ears and eyes, and then allowed to go free, said Lord Hong. Rincewind raised his hand. First offence, he said. Silence! We find, generally, that there is no second offence, said Lord Hong. What is this person? I like him, said the Emperor. I think I shall keep him. He makes me laugh. Rincewind opened his mouth. Silence! screamed the Chamberlain, perhaps unwisely in view of current thinking. Um, could you stop him shouting silence every time I try and speak? Rincewind ventured. Certainly, great wizard, said the Emperor. He nodded at some guards. Take the Chamberlain away and cut his lips off. Great one, I... And his ears also. The wretched man was dragged away. A pair of lacquered doors slammed shut. There was a round of applause from the courtiers. Would you like to watch him eat them? <laughs> said the emperor, grinning happily. It's tremendous fun. <laughs> said Rinchwind. A good decision, Lord, said Lord Hong. He turned his head towards Rincewind. To the wizard's immense surprise, and some horror, too, he winked. Oh, great one, said a plump courtier, dropping to his knees, bouncing slightly and then nervously approaching the emperor. I wonder if perhaps it is entirely wise to be so merciful to this foreign devil. The emperor looked down. Rincewind could have sworn that dust fell off him. There was a gentle movement among the crowd. Without anyone apparently doing anything so gross as activating their feet, there was nevertheless a widening space around the kneeling man. Then the Emperor smiled. Your concern is well received, he said. The courtier risked a relieved grin. The Emperor added, However, your presumption is not. Kill him slowly, over several days. Oh. Yes, indeed. Lots of boiling oil. An excellent idea, O oh Lord, said Lord Hong. The Emperor turned back to Rincewind. I am sure the Great wizard is my friend, he suctioned. <laughs> said Rincewind. He'd been in this approximate position before, gods knew. But he'd always been facing someone, well, usually someone who looked like Lord Hong, not a near corpse who was nearly so far round the bend he couldn't poke sanity with a long pole. We shall have such fun, said the emperor. I read all about you. <laughs> said Rincewind. The Emperor waved a hand at the court again. 
Now I will retire, he said. There was a general movement and much ostensible yawning. Clearly no one stayed up later than the Emperor. Emperor, said Lord Hong wearily, what will you have us do with this great wizard of yours? The old man gave Rincewind the look a present gets around the time the batteries have run out. Put him in the special dungeon, he said, for now. Yes, Emperor, said Lord Hong. He nodded at a couple of guards. Rincewind managed a quick look back as he was dragged from the room. The Emperor was lying back in his movable bed, quite oblivious to him. Is he mad or what? he said. Silence. Rincewind looked up at the guard who'd said that. A mouth like that could get a man into big trouble around here, he muttered. Lord Hong always found himself depressed by the general state of humanity. It often seemed to him to be flawed. There was no concentration. Take the Red Army. If he had been a rebel, the Emperor would have been assassinated months ago and the country would now be aflame, except for those bits too damp to burn. But these... Despite his best efforts, their idea of revolutionary activity was a surreptitious wall poster saying something like, Unpleasantness to oppressors when convenient. They had tried to set fire to guard houses. That was good. That was proper revolutionary activity, except for the bit where they tried to make an appointment first. It had taken Lord Hong some considerable effort to see that the Red Army appeared to achieve any victories at all. Well, he'd given them the great wizard they so sincerely believed in. They had no excuse now. And by the look of him, the wretch was as craven and talentless as Lord Hong had hoped. Any army led by him would either flee or be slaughtered, leaving the way open for the counter-revolution. The counter-revolution would not be inefficient. Lord Hong would see to that. But things had to be done one step at a time. There were enemies everywhere, suspicious enemies. The path of the ambitious man was a nightingale floor. One wrong step and it would sing out. It was a shame the great wizard would turn out to be so good at locks. Lord Tang's men were guarding the prison block tonight. Of course, if the Red Army were to escape, no blame at all could possibly attach to Lord Tang. Lord Hong risked a little chuckle to himself as he strode back to his suite. Proof. That was the thing. There must never be proof. But that wouldn't matter very long. There was nothing like a fearsomely huge war to unite people. And the fact that the great wizard, that is, the leader of the terrible rebel army, was an evil foreign troublemaker was just the spark to light the firecracker. And then, Ankh Morpork, urinating dog. Hung Hung was old. The culture was based on custom, the alimentary tract of the common water buffalo, and base treachery. Lord Hong was in favour of all three, but they did not add up to world domination, and Lord Hong was particularly in favour of that provided it was achieved by Lord Hong. If I was the traditional type of Grand Vizier, he thought as he sat down before his tea table, I'd cackle with laughter at this point. He smiled to himself instead. Time for the box again? No. Some things were all the better for the anticipation. Mad Hamish's wheelchair caused a few heads to turn, but no actual comment. Undue curiosity was not a survival trait in Hung Hung. They just got on with their work, which appeared to be the endless carrying of stacks of paper along corridors. Cohen looked down at what was in his hand, 
Over the decades, he'd fought with many weapons. Swords, of course, and bows and spears and clubs and... Well, now he came to think of it just about anything. Except this. I still don't like it, said Truckle. Why are we carrying pieces of paper? Because no one looks at you in a place like this if you're carrying a piece of paper, said Mr Savaloy. Why? What? said Mad Hamish. It's a kind of magic. I'd feel happier if it was a weapon. As a matter of fact, it can be the greatest weapon there is. I know. I've just cut myself on my bit, said Boy Willie, sucking his finger. What? Look at it like this, gentlemen, said Mr Savaloy. Here we are, actually inside the Forbidden City, and no one is dead. Yes, that's what we're danging, complaining about, said Truckle. Mr Savaloy sighed. There was something in the way Truckle used words. It didn't matter what he actually said. What you heard was in some strange way the word he actually meant. He could turn the air blue just by saying, Socks. The door slammed shut behind Rincewind, and there was the sound of a bolt shooting into place. The Empire's jails were pretty much like the ones at home. When you want to incarcerate such an ingenious creature as the common human being, you tend to rely on the good old-fashioned iron bar and large amounts of stone. It looked as though this well-tried pattern had been established here for a very long time. Well, he definitely scored a hit with the Emperor. For some reason... This did not reassure him. The man gave Rincewind the distinct impression of being the kind of person who was at least as dangerous to his friends as to his enemies. He remembered Noodle Jackson back in the days when he was a very young student. Everyone wanted to be friends with Noodle, but somehow, if you were in his gang, you found yourself being trodden on, or chased by the watch, or being hit in fights you didn't start, while Noodle was somewhere on the edge of things laughing. Besides, the Emperor wasn't simply at death's door, but, well inside the hallway, admiring the carpet and commenting on the hat stand. And you didn't have to be a political genius to know that when someone like that died, scores were being settled before he'd even got cold. Anyone he'd publicly called a friend would have a life expectancy more normally associated with things that hover over trout streams at sunset. Rincewind moved aside a skull and sat down. There was the possibility of rescue, he supposed, but the Red Army would be hard put to it to rescue a rubber duck from drowning. Anyway, that had put him back in the clutches of Butterfly, who terrified him almost as much as the Emperor. He had to believe that the gods didn't intend for Rincewind, after all his adventures, to rot in a dungeon. No, he added bitterly, they probably had something much more inventive in mind. What light reached the dungeon came from a very small grill and had a second-hand look. The rest of the furnishing was a pile of what had possibly once been straw. There was a gentle tapping on the wall. Once, twice, three times. Rincewind picked up the skull and returned the signal. One tap came back. He repeated it. Then there were two. He tapped twice. Well, this was familiar. Communication without meaning. It was just like being back at Unseen University. Fine, he said, his voice echoing in the cell. Fine, tray prisoner, but what are we saying? There was a gentle scraping noise, and one of the blocks in the wall very gently slid out of the wall, dropping onto Rincewind's foot. Ah! What big hippo? said a muffled voice. What? Sorry. What? 
You wanted to know about the tapping code. It's how we communicate between cells, you see. One tap means... Excuse me, but aren't we communicating now? Yes, but not formally. Prisoners are not allowed to talk. The voice slowed down as if the speaker had suddenly remembered something important. Ah, yes, said Rincewind. I was forgetting. This is hung-hung. Everyone obeys the rules. Rincewind's voice died away too. On either side of the wall there was a long, thoughtful silence. Rincewind? Two flower? What are you doing here? said Rincewind. Rotting in a dungeon. Me too. Good grief! How long has it been? said the muffled voice of Two Flower. What? How long has what been? But you! Why are you? You wrote that damn book! I just thought it would be interesting for people. Interesting? Interesting? I thought people would find it an interesting account of a foreign culture. I never meant it to cause trouble. Rincewind leaned against his side of the wall. No, of course. Two Flower never wanted to cause any trouble. Some people never did. Probably the last sound heard before the universe folded up like a paper hat would be someone saying, What happens if I do this? It must have been fate that brought you here, said Two Flower. Yes, it's the sort of thing he likes to do, said Rincewind. You remember the good times we had? Did we? I must have had my eyes shut. The adventures? Oh, them. You mean hanging from high places, that sort of thing. Rincewind? Yes, what? I feel a lot happier about things now you're here. That's amazing. Rincewind enjoyed the comfort of the wall. It was just rock. He felt he could rely on it. Everyone seems to have a copy of your book, he said. It's a revolutionary document, and I do mean copy. It looks as if they make their own copy and pass it on. Yes, it's called Samizdat. What does that mean? It means each one must be the same as the one before. Oh dear, I thought it would just be entertainment. I didn't think people would take it seriously. I do hope it's not causing too much bother. Well, your revolutionaries are still at the slogan and poster stage, but I shouldn't think that'll count for much if they're caught. Oh dear. How come you're still alive? I don't know. I think they may have forgotten about me. That tends to happen, you know. It's the paperwork. Someone makes the wrong stroke with the brush or forgets to copy a line. I believe it happens a lot. You mean there's people in prison and no one can remember why? Oh, yes. Then why don't they set them free? I suppose it's felt they must have done something. All in all, I'm afraid our government does leave something to be desired. Like a new government? Oh, dear. You could get locked up for saying things like that. People slept, but the Forbidden City never slept. Torches flickered all night in the great bureau as the ceaseless business of empire went on. This largely involved, as Mr Savaloy had said, moving paper. Six Beneficent Winds was a deputy district administrator for the Langtang district and good at a job which he rather enjoyed. He was not a wicked man. True, he had the same sense of humour as a chicken casserole, True, he played the accordion for amusement and disliked cats intensely and had a habit of dabbing his upper lip with his napkin after his tea ceremony in a way that had made Mrs Beneficent Winds commit murder in her mind on a regular basis over the years. 
and he kept his money in a small leather shovel purse and counted it out very thoroughly whenever he made a purchase, especially if there was a queue behind him. But on the other hand, he was kind to animals and made small but regular contributions to charity. He frequently gave moderate sums to beggars in the street, although he made a note of this in the little notebook he always carried to remind him to visit them in his official capacity later on, and he never took away from people more money than they actually had. He was also, unusually for men employed in the Forbidden City after dark, not a eunuch. Guards were not eunuchs, of course, and people had got around this by classifying them officially as furniture, and it had been found that tax officials also needed every faculty at their disposal to combat the wiles of the average peasant, who had this regrettable tendency to avoid paying taxes. There were much nastier people in the building than six beneficent winds, and it was therefore just his inauspicious luck that his paper and bamboo door slid aside to reveal seven strange-looking old eunuchs, one of them in a wheeled contrivance. They didn't even bow, let alone fall on their knees, and he not only had an official red hat, but it had a white button on it. His brush dropped from his hands when the men wandered into his office as if they owned it. One of them started poking holes in the wall and speaking gibberish. Hey, the walls are just made of paper. Hey, look, if you lick your finger, it goes right through, see? I will call for the guards and have you all flogged, shouted six beneficent winds, his temper moderated slightly by the extreme age of the visitors. What did he say? He said he'd call for the guards. Oh, yes, please, let him call for the guards. No, we don't want that yet. Act normally. You mean cut his throat? I meant a more normal kind of normally. It's what I call normal. One of the old men faced the speechless official and gave him a big grin. Excuse us, your supreme... Um, oh, dear, what's the word? Um, Pushcart sale? Uh, uh, immense rock? Uh, oh, ah, yes, venerableness, but we seem to be a little lost. A couple of the old men shuffled around behind six beneficent winds and started to read, or at least try to read, what he'd been working on. A sheet of paper was snatched from his hands. What's this say, Teach? Let me see. The first wind of autumn shakes the lotus flower, seven lucky logs to pay one pig, and three... Looks like a four-armed man waving a flag of rice on pain of having his rather a stylized thing here, can't quite make it out, struck with many blows. By order of six beneficent winds, collector of revenues, Lang Tang. There was a subtle change among the old men. Now they were all grinning, but not in a way that gave him any comfort. One of them, with teeth like diamonds, leaned towards him and said, in bad Agatean, you're a tax collector, Mr. Knob on your hat. Six beneficent winds wondered if he'd be able to summon the guard. There was something terrible about these old men. They weren't venerable at all. They were horribly menacing, and although he couldn't see any obvious weapons, he knew for a cold frozen fact that he wouldn't be able to get out more than the first syllable before he'd be killed. Besides, his throat had gone dry and his pants had gone wet. Nothing wrong with being a tax collector? He croaked. We never said that, said Diamond Teeth. We always like to meet tax collectors. Some of our most favouritest people, tax collectors, said another old man. Saves a lot of trouble, said Diamond Teeth. Yeah, 
said a third old man, like it means you don't have to go from house to house killing everyone for their valuables. You just wait and kill the... Gentlemen, can I have a word? The speaker was the slightly goat-faced one that didn't seem quite so unpleasant as the others. The terrible men clustered around him and sick beneficent winds heard the strange syllables of a coarse foreign tongue. What? But he's a tax collector. That's what they're for. What? A firm tax base is the foundation of sound governance, gentlemen. Please trust me. I understood all of that up to a firm tax. Nevertheless, no useful purpose will be served by killing this hard-working tax-gatherer. He'd be dead. I call that useful. There was some more of the same. Six beneficent winds jumped when the group broke up and the goat-faced man gave him a smile. My humble friends are overawed by your... Variety of plum, um, um, uh, small knife for cutting seaweed, um, presents, noble sir, he said, his every word slandered by Truckle's vigorous gesticulation behind his back. How about if we just cut a bit off? What? How did you get in here? said Six Beneficent Winds. There are many strong guards. I knew we missed something said Diamond Teeth. We would like you to show us around the Forbidden City, said Goatface. My name is Mr Stuffed Tube, I think you would call it. Yes, Stuffed Tube, I'm pretty sure. Six beneficent winds glanced hopefully towards the door. And we are here to learn more about your wonderful mountain, um, uh, variety of bamboo. Uh, sound of running water at evening? Drat. Um, uh, civilization. Behind him, Truckle was energetically demonstrating to the rest of the horde what he and Bruce the Hoon's skeletal raiders once did to a tax-gatherer. The sweeping arm movements in particular occupied six beneficent winds' attention. He couldn't understand the words, but somehow you didn't need to. Why are you talking to him like that? Genghis... I'm lost. There are no maps of the Forbidden City. We need a guide. Goatface turned back to the taxman. Perhaps you would like to come with us, he said. Out, thought six beneficent winds. Yes, there may be guards out there. Just a minute, said Diamond Teeth as he nodded. Pick up your paintbrush and write down what I say. A minute later they'd gone. All that remained in the taxman's office was an amended piece of paper which read as follows. Roses are red, violets are blue, seven lucky logs to be given one pig and all the rice he can carry because he is now one lucky peasant. By order of six beneficent winds, collector of revenues, Langtang. Help, help, if anyone reads this, I am being held prisoner by an evil eunuch. Help. Rincewind and Twoflower lay in their separate cells and talked about the good old days. At least Twoflower talked about the good old days. Rincewind worked at a crack in the stone with a piece of straw, it being all he had to hand. It would take several thousand years to make any kind of impression, but that was no reason to give up. Do we get fed in here, he said, interrupting the flow of reminiscence. Oh, sometimes, but it's not like the marvellous food in Ark Morpork. Really, murmured Rincewind, scratching away. 
a tiny piece of mortar seemed ready to move. I'll always remember the taste of Mr. Dibbler's sausages. People do. A once-in-a-lifetime experience. Frequently, the straw broke. Damn and blast. Rincewind sat back. What's so important about the Red Army, he said. I mean, they're just a bunch of kids, just a nuisance. Yes, I'm afraid things got rather confused, said Two Flower. Um, have you ever heard of the theory that history goes in cycles? Oh, I saw a drawing in one of Leonard of Quirm's notebooks, Rincewind began, trying again with another straw. No, I mean like a, a wheel spinning. If you stand in the same place, it all comes round again. Oh, that. Blast! Well, a lot of people believe it here. They think history starts again every 3,000 years. Could be, said Rincewind, who was looking for another straw and wasn't really listening. Then the words sank in. Three thousand years? That's a bit short, isn't it? The whole thing? Stars and oceans and intelligent life evolving from arts graduates? That sort of thing? Oh no, that's just... stuff. Proper history started with the founding of the empire by one son, Mira, the first emperor, and his servant, the great wizard. Just a legend, really. It's the sort of thing peasants believe. They look at something like the Great Wall and say that's such a marvellous thing it must have been built by magic. And the Red Army, what it probably was, was just a well-organised body of trained fighting men. The first real army, you see. All there was before was just undisciplined mobs. That's what it must have been, not magical at all. The Great Wizard couldn't really have made... <sighs> what the peasants believe is silly. Why? What do they believe? They say the Great Wizard made the Earth come alive. When all the armies on the continent faced one sun mirror, the great wizard flew a kite. Sounds sensible to me, said Rincewind. When there's a war around, take the day off. That's my motto. No, you don't understand. This was a special kite. It trapped the lightning in the sky and the great wizard stored it in bottles and then took the mud itself and baked it with the lightning and made it into an army. Never heard of any spells for that. And they have funny ideas about reincarnation, too. Rinswind conceded that they probably would. It probably whiled away those long water buffaloid hours. Hey, after I die, I hope I come back as a man holding a water buffalo, but facing a different way. Um, no, said Two Flower. They don't think you can come back at all. Uh, ugh, I'm not using the right words, am I? Bit corroded on this language. I mean, pre-incarnation. It's like reincarnation backwards. They think you're born before you die. Oh, really, said Rincewind, scratching at the stones. Amazing. Born before you die. Life before death. People will get really excited when they hear about that. No, that's not exactly... Ugh. It's all tied in with ancestors. You should always venerate ancestors because you might be them one day. And are you listening? The little piece of mortar fell away. Not bad for ten minutes' work, thought Rincewind. Come the next ice age, we're out of here. It dawned on him that he was working on the wall that led to Two Flowers' cell. Taking several thousand years to break into an adjoining cell could well be thought of as a waste of time. He started on a different wall. Scratch, scratch. There was a terrible scream. Scratch, 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 scratch. Sounds like the Emperor has woken up, said Two Flowers' voice from the hole in the wall. That's kind of an early morning torture, is it? said Rincewind. He started to hammer at the huge blocks with a piece of shattered stone. 
It's not really his fault. He just doesn't understand about people. Is that so? You know how common kids go through a stage of pulling the wings off flies? I never did, said Rincewind. You can't trust flies. They may look small, but they can turn nasty. Kids generally, I mean. Yes. Well? He is an emperor. No one ever dared tell him it was wrong. It's just a matter of, you know, scaling up. All the five families fight among themselves for the crown. He killed his nephew to become emperor. No one has ever told him that it's not right to keep killing people for fun. At least no one who has ever managed to get to the end of the first sentence. And the Hongs and the Fangs and the Tangs and the Sungs and the McSweenies have been killing one another for thousands of years. It's all part of the royal succession. McSweenies? Very old established family. Rincewind nodded gloomily. It was probably like breeding horses. If you have a system where treacherous murderers tend to win, you end up breeding really treacherous murderers. You end up with a situation where it's dangerous to lean over a cradle. There was another scream. Rincewind started kicking at the stones. A key turned in the lock. Oh, said Two Flower. But the door didn't open. Finally, Rincewind walked over and tried the big iron ring. The door swung outwards, but not too far because the recumbent body of a guard makes an unusual but efficient doorstop. There was a whole ring of keys hanging from the one in the door. An inexperienced prisoner would simply have run for it, but Rincewind was a postgraduate student in the art of staying alive and knew that in circumstances like these much the best thing to do was let out every single prisoner, pat each one hurriedly on the back and say, quick, they're coming for you, and then go and sit somewhere nice and quiet until the pursuit had disappeared in the distance. He opened the door to Two Flowers' cell first. The little man was skinnier and grubbier than he remembered and had a wispy beard, but in one very significant way he had the feature that Rincewind remembered so well the big, beaming, trusting smile that suggested that anything bad currently happening to him was just some sort of laughable mistake and would be bound to be sorted out by reasonable people. Rincewind, it is you. I certainly never thought I'd see you again, he said. Yes, I thought something on those lines, said Rincewind. Two Flower looked past Rincewind at the fallen guard. Is he dead? he said, speaking of a man with a sword half buried in his back. Extremely likely. Did you do that? I was inside the cell. Amazing. Good trick. Despite several years of exposure to the facts of the matter, Rincewind remembered Two Flower had never really wanted to grasp the fact that his companion had the magical abilities of the common housefly. It was useless to try and dissuade him. It just meant that modesty was added to the list of non-existent virtues. He tried some of the keys in other cell doors. Various raggedy people emerged blinking in the slightly better light. One of them, turning his body slightly in order to get it through the door, was three yoked oxen. From the look of him, he'd been beaten up, but this might just have been someone's attempt to attract his attention. This is Rincewind, said Two Flower proudly, the great wizard. Did you know he killed the guard from inside the cell? They politely inspected the corpse. I didn't, really, said Rincewind. And he's modest, too. Long life to the people's endeavour, said three yoked oxen through rather swollen lips. Mine's a pint, said Rincewind. Here's big fella keys belong door. You go letty people out, e chop chop. One of the freed prisoners limped to the end of the passage. There's a dead guard here, he said. 
It wasn't me, said Rincewind plaintively. I mean, perhaps I wished they were dead, but... People edged away. You didn't want to be too close to anyone who could wish like that. If this had been Ankh Morpork, somebody would have said, Oh, yeah, sure, he magically stabbed them in the back. But that was because people in Ankh Morpork knew Rincewind, and they knew that if a wizard really wanted you dead, you'd have no back left to stab. Three yoked oxen had been able to master the technical business of opening doors. More swung open. Lotus Blossom, said Rincewind. She clung to Oxen's arm and smiled at Rincewind. Other members of the cadre trooped out behind her. Then, to Rincewind's amazement, she looked at Twoflower, screamed, and threw her arms around his neck. Extended continuation to filial affection, chanted three yoked Oxen. Close cover before striking, said Rincewind. Um, what exactly is happening? A very small red soldier tugged at his robe. He is her daddy, it said. You never said you had children. I'm sure I did, often, said Twoflower, disentangling himself. Anyway, it is allowed. You're married? I was, yes. I'm sure I must have said. We were probably running away from something at the time, so there's a Mrs. Twoflower, is there? There was for a while, said Twoflower, and for a moment an expression almost of anger distorted his preternaturally benign countenance. Not alas any more. Rincewind looked away, because that was better than looking at Twoflower's face. Butterfly had also emerged. She stood just outside the cell door, with her hands clasped in front of her, looking down demurely at her feet. Twoflower rushed over to her. Butterfly! Rincewind looked down at the rabbit clutcher. She another daughter... Pearl? Yes. The little man came towards Rincewind, dragging the girls. Have you met my daughters, he said. This is Rincewind, who... We have had the pleasure, said Butterfly, gravely. How did you all get here, said Rincewind. We fought as hard as we could, said Butterfly, but there were simply too many of them. I hope you didn't try to grab their weapons, said Rincewind, as sarcastically as he dared. Butterfly glared at him. Sorry, said Rincewind. Herb says it is the system that is to blame, said Lotus Blossom. I bet he's got a better system all worked out. Rincewind looked at the throng of prisoners. They usually have. Where is he, by the way? The girls looked around. I don't see him here, said Lotus Blossom, but I think that when the guards attacked us, he laid down his life for the cause. Why? Because that's what he said we should do. I am ashamed that I did not, but they seemed to want to capture us, not kill us. I did not see him, said Butterfly. She and Rincewind exchanged a glance. I think perhaps he was not there. You mean he had been caught already? said Lotus Blossom. Butterfly looked at Rincewind again. It occurred to him that whereas Lotus Blossom had inherited a two-flower view of the world, Butterfly must have taken after her mother. She thought more like Rincewind, i.e. the worst of everyone. Perhaps, she said. Make considerable sacrifice for the common good, said three yoked oxen. There's one born every minute, said Rincewind absently. Butterfly seemed to get a grip of herself. However, she said, we must make the most of this opportunity. Rincewind, who had been heading for the stairs, froze. Exactly what do you mean, he said. "'Don't you see? We are at large in the Forbidden City.' "'Not me,' said Rincewind. "'I've never been at large. I've always been at Hunched.' 
The enemy brought us in here, and now we are free. Thanks to the great wizard, said Lotus Blossom, and we must seize the day. She picked up a sword from a stricken guard and waved it dramatically. We must storm the palace, just as Herb suggested. There's only thirty of you, said Rincewind. You're not a storm, you're a shower. There are hardly any guards within the city itself, said Butterfly. If we can overcome those around the Emperor's apartments... You'll be killed, said Rincewind. She turned on him. Then at least we shall have died for something. Cleanse the state with the blood of the martyrs, rumbled three yoked oxen. Rincewind spun round and waved a finger under three yoked oxen's nose, which was as high as he could reach. I'll bloody well thump you if you trot out something like that one more time, he shouted, and then grimaced at the realisation that he had just threatened a man three times heavier than he was. Listen to me, will you? he said, settling down a little. I know about people who talk about suffering for the common good. It's never bloody them. When you hear a man shouting, Forward, brave comrades, you'll see he's the one behind the bloody big rock and wearing the only really arrow-proof helmet. Understand? He stopped. The cadre were looking at him as if he were mad. He stared at their young, keen faces and felt very, very old. But there are causes worth dying for, said Butterfly. No, there aren't, because you've only got one life, but you can pick up another five causes on any street corner. Good grief! How can you live with a philosophy like that? Rincewind took a deep breath. Continuously. End of CD 5